Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we are joined by Ashley Wallace. So Ashley is lead physiotherapist at British Equestrian and also athlete health, health consultant at EIS, English Institute of Sport. So, Ash, thank you very much for joining. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Andy. I'm, I'm really excited to, to have a chat. Yeah, no, absolutely. So talk about, you obviously got an accent. Where are you from originally? Uh, originally uh, from South Africa. So uh, born in a, a little place called Bloemfontein and then but grew up, I spent my, my first 30 years in Cape Town. So that's where I'm from originally. Right. I was meant to be going to South Africa in 10 days, but that's that's definitely off now. Yeah, so. it's on the red list. I, I'm, I'm meant to be going. Well, I was hoping to go back for a, for a month in November, but I think that's looking less and less likely as it, as it does stay in the red list, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah. so in terms of that then, so at what point did you start doing what, what you were doing there? So like when did you start doing physio? Was that, was that when you were based over there? Uh, yeah. So I... Well, Fortunately for me, it was a, a passion and a calling from from when I was really really young. So I, I always so growing up was really sporty and and played a lot of sports and rode horses and played hockey and you you name it, did it, surfed all the rest of it. Um, and then when I finished school, I was uh, chosen to be an exchange student. So when I when I originally when I matriculated, I had applied to do medicine and then was accepted to be an exchange student to go to America for a year. And that, to be honest, in many ways changed my life. Uh, fantastic experience. But also when I was there, it was, uh, dare I say, it, a long time ago. So it was the 84 LA, 84 Olympics. And I was introduced to someone that was, I was based near to Johns Hopkins University and hospital. And I met a physio there who was working with the American long jumpers. I remember going, and they were doing it as part of a sort of a student uh, exposure to, to the hospital. And they showed us around. And we met this guy and he was showing me how he was looking at how you can change, you know, if you change an athlete's dorsiflexion, it can change the length they could jump. And I was like, that's what I want to do. That is absolutely what I want to do. And I came back home and said to my folks, I've changed my mind. I want to study physio. Didn't even look at what, what physio <laughs> entailed. All of the medical side of things uh, applied and, and started studying in, uh, in a place called Stellenbosch. The University of Stellenbosch is, is where I started out. So, I mean, anatomy was always a passion that still is of mine. And I, I'm, I'm really passionate that you understand the anatomy, you can work up pretty much anything. And from a, from a young age, I remember doing Jane Fonda exercise videos. And so, so exercise has been a huge part of my life. And I see you laughing and fair enough, I shouldn't admit to that, should I? Um, and I was, yeah, a very lucky, a, a career that I, I chose and, and loved. Yeah, great. So you're based in the Baltimore area then? I was, yes, absolutely right. So a little a place called Westminster, which was just north of, of Baltimore, but but really, really close. And as I say, very lucky to be exposed to, to travel and, and be exposed to, John, as I say, the age of 17, 18 years old, which was influenced my career without a doubt. Without yeah. A doubt. No, it's an incredible institution, John Hopkins. Oh. It? It's, it's, it's amazing. Mind blowing, mind blowing. Yeah, a good friend of mine's the director of outpatients there. So I'll have to introduce you to him. So he, he does a lot of work with athletes out there, whether it's uh, um, pro sports teams, but also yeah, in terms of like yeah. runners and so on. So well, they were they were doing really, and as I said back in '84, and they were doing some really sort of novel and innovative work with with at the time the the long jumpers, the the American long jumpers, and it just blew me away. It was it was absolutely, and I can remember many years later when I was. So I, I, in South Africa, I, I worked actually, when I qualified, I worked in a hospital, I worked with head injuries, I worked with burns, because I had a, a scholarship to work back. 
So, and at that stage, I was just getting into the playing international hockey. So I played hockey for South Africa. So my sort of career was, was, was on a back burner. And then I did my postgraduate master's in South Africa and uh, in sports medicine. But I was always at that stage really focused on my career as a, as a hockey player. And it was when I, when I came over here and I started eventually kind of you know, many years down the line in 2003, I was cycling around Dorney Lake when I was working with British Rowing. And I remember it was this amazing, beautiful flat water and working with the rowers, cycling with the coach, chatting about why someone wasn't quite able to get their rock over. I remember phoning my sister and saying, I can't, you know, that dream I had back in 84, almost 20 years later, I'm doing exactly what I, what I wanted to do. A, lo- a long way to get there. But um, yeah, I've had, you know, just, it, it, it certainly chose me without a doubt. Mm, no, that's, that's incredible then. So at what point did you stop becoming an athlete then? Or like what point did that end? Um, when I was when I was told I was too old, so so we we obviously were in a part we are, well not obviously but I was in the apartheid era for for much of my career, and then in '93 when apartheid ended, we were really lucky to to get back into playing international hockey. So I played a lot of international hockey then, and we had a wild card entry to try and qualify for the '96 Olympics, and we just missed it by by one place. And at that stage, I was. I definitely put my hockey career first and was and I had a I was in business with it at a private practice and that was certainly coming second and I thought well I if I stay for another four years I'll be you know it's not not quite over the hill but I thought at some stage I need to really crack down and start focusing what I want to do career-wise so uh, in 96 97 I re- retired from from playing hockey and then really focused and, and came over to England actually I had it my mom was originally from Northern Ireland so I could get an ancestry visa. And my plan was absolutely to travel, learn, travel Europe, uh, do as many courses as, as I could, because there was certainly a dearth of, of CPD, of international, certainly lecturers coming to South Africa. And then my plan was always to go back and um, go back to the practice. And that was right. 20, uh, how many years? 26 years ago. So I was 25 years ago. So I, that didn't quite go to plan. Yeah. But, um, I just when I started working, I was really lucky. I started working with uh, with Booper and worked at Booper Bushy and they had quite a big sports injury setup. We were working then with Watford because they had Saracens rugby were there. And I started getting involved in back in the day in Cybex testing with those guys. And um, I worked with with at Booper for seven years, which was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic introduction to working in, to, in England. And they were a brilliant company to work for and really supported my development in in this country right and just going back into that then what was it like playing sport in apartheid then well you know you don't it was interesting because you I look back now and I think of and, and often people say to me how, how could you play when you had nothing to to aim to, to to aim for and you know we didn't have world cups to aim for we didn't have uh, olympic games to aim for when when I was playing but it was so you know south africa is a, just a, a absolutely sport crazy country so to get your provincial colors um was huge to to get selected and when i first got selected for the south african indoor hockey team we played against our b team we didn't play against any international side and i think a year later there was a we used to often play against much the same as in rugby and cricket you'd have these rebel touring sides and we would have the same as the hockey players that had given up their career and they were going to come play against us but I have to say, it was so competitive. And it was, even though you didn't 
have that as something it was just you know i wanted to be the best in the province i wanted to be the the, the, in, the in the top in those days top 16 in the country and that was bizarrely now when i think about it and i think how focused athletes are about actually you know you haven't achieved anything unless you've actually played a test match or you've gone to a world cup or, a, or an olympics but um, for us that was all we had so mm. that's what 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 you focused on and and did your best and was was so competitive unbelievably competitive um and I, I, yeah so it, it's that was it, it's, as i say very very competitive still and and still felt amazing when when you achieved the the top of your sport that you could yeah i mean obviously when when it was announced when when apartheid ended and then the the, sort of the sanctions against us were lifted oh my word that was that was amazing and and the first time we we left South Africa. So we had the first team to come over and play us was Canada, I think. And then we had Australia. And then uh, after the 92 Olympics, the, then the Great Britain team had split up into England. This is the hockey team. And they came over and played us. And, and that was, again, probably a, it were a fantastic um, competition because I made some of my, some of my best friends today were in that team. And because we were so hungry of you know, meeting, meeting some of these iconic players that we'd, only seen on on television and and sometimes getting sort of dvd or videos in those days to training things um i i then when i came over here i played for slough and and many of those players have gone on to be some of my closest friends so it's this kind of um, serendipity really where mm. they're um, playing hockey when i came over to england also helped me i think settle in this country and make friends for life yeah and were you because you were a physio like were you drafted in to be like strapping players up and was that Yes, yes. I mean, we had a physio. We did have a physio in the team, but I, I definitely uh, would get. I, at that, I used to do quite a lot of acupuncture back then, and so I would get drafted in to 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 help do some acupuncture and and do some treatment. And I sometimes reflect on uh, my career as a hockey player, and and I was I would definitely had this dual role, and and I often think you know perhaps if I just focused, you know, I might have had a longer career as a hockey player if I just focused on being a hockey player, and not also doing physio at the same time but um you know absolutely no regrets and and yeah. yes often often did land up helping out the physio when there was carnage and, and loads of injuries that needed treating yeah unpaid internship okay exactly right exactly right and and i you know it's, not, it's something that i talk to to young physios now is that, it, that internship was a it went on at the same time as me playing internationally but also when i finished you then i then sort of worked as a as a physio for the south african team um, when I when I retired before I came over to England so right. yeah it was a, a long a long internship yeah I can imagine so if you moved over to Spa so did you need to get sponsored to come here when you moved no, no I had um because mom my mom was um, of course yeah Northern yeah. Ireland so I I got a what we call British ancestry visa hmm. uh, which allowed me to live and work here for four years and then you apply for um permanent residency and then finally uh, passport so so yes, and I had a I had a real. So my dad was South African, mom was a mom had a British passport throughout. So uh, a little bit of a, a mongrel really of, of Irish descent and and South African. Yeah. So after you'd been at Booper Bushy, then what what happened next? Uh, EIS. So I was and and again, uh, people always say to me, you know, what's your sort of three? What's your five year plan? And and talk me through how you made those plans. And honestly, you know, I'd never planned to to I'd never heard of the English Institute of Sport back in 2003. And I have a very good friend to thank for that, who at the time was physio for the, the England hockey team. 
And uh, she phoned me, Mary McAllister's her name, and Mary phoned me to say, Ash, there's, a, there's an advert in The Guardian for this, this company called the English Institute of Sport. And they're opening up at Bisham Abbey and there's a job going there. They want someone to set it up and it's working with hockey and judo and rowing. And yeah, I think you should look at that. I was like, well, I've never, you know, I've never even watched rowing. I don't even know, I, I know nothing about rowing. Hockey, yes. Judo also have got no idea. But cut a long story short, uh, applied. And at that stage was in two minds because I was at that real which happens to a lot of physios and Bupa were really pushing me. I, I was heading up the department then and they said, well, they wanted to fast track me through a, an MBA. And that's what I started doing my MBA. My father fell ill with cancer and, and sadly passed away. But actually, again, I think, I think to this day, I, I started doing my MBA and I always thought that's what I wanted to do. And I just realized how much I missed being a clinician and I was pulled away into more and more management and less and less clinical work. And when the role came up with the EIS, I thought, actually, I really do miss it. I'd only stepped away from clinical work for about 18 months or two years, but I realized um, that actually my real passion is, is, clinical, is clinical work. So uh, I applied for the job, uh, bought a few books on rowing and, and, and did a very, uh, learned very quickly uh, about rowing and, and got the job. So that was back in 2003, where, where English Institute was just starting out as, a, as an institute. And I think my, my, my number is 46. I was the 46th person that was employed. And uh, just amazing, you know, amazing to start a vision with uh, you know, Gene Watson, I still work with, and the guys who, there was just four of us that started. So SNC, physio, physiologist, uh, doc, Dr. Richard Budget in our heads up the IOC. And that was the group that, that started at Bisham um, mm. many, many years ago. Well, almost 20 years ago now. Or 19 so, years ago. What was it like then going in there? Like what was the, the infrastructure? What, what was there? Nothing compared to what it's like now. So uh, at the time, Bisham was obviously really well known for um, being a base for, for football in, in those days. Um, and it was basically we had a, it was still being built. And really, it was an unknown. They just, you know, the, the institute was really starting. So we had these, we had these what they call regional areas. And at that stage, hockey wasn't based at Bisham, so there was no centrally based sport. We were working with shooting that were based down in Bisley, sailing, who obviously still down south and still are there. And the whole idea was to try and how do you create services that you can best support these these athletes. So. Uh, very different to the model now. I, I was basically a multi-sport physio, so my job was to primarily work with the, the British rowing women's team, who were based at Longridge, just around the corner, and was to put in to put in services. Up until then, most of the sports had worked with contractors, so they wouldn't have any day-to-day -day support. They would just have support when they were on camps or at competition. So what we were trying to build was actually how can we pull them in to, to having regular support, physio initially, uh, again, I smile in that they, they didn't want any strength and conditioning. Strength and conditioning back in those days, particularly in rowing, was coach-led. So, and, and I kept saying, we've got a really good strength and conditioning coach, but they were, it had to be physio and coach at that time. Um, hockey, as I say, was not a centralised sport at that stage. They were based all over the place so at clubs and would come into a squad training. So it was trying to really my and and certainly the vision of those of us that were there were actually if you make these sites really good the sports will come so if you have the right the right facilities and then you offer the right services 
Um, and, and that's in fact what is what has happened is you've got these big hub sites. Bisham is a huge hub site. We, we started off with myself being one physio and, and servicing hockey, rowing and the judo academy uh, to now having, you know, I think we, we now put 89, 90 staff on site uh, with a centralized sport, rowing and, and um, hockey. And then obviously loads of other sports accessing that as a site. So it was it was amazing, really, because I mean we worked we worked in a, and I think it, it's always I always reflect on it because in two thousand three, obviously we were one year away from from the games from two thousand four, and at that time those those rowers we had a, a a makeshift gym which was up in one of the indoor tennis courts. We didn't have the fantastic facilities we have now, but they got in there, still did the work, lifted the same weights, and and two thousand four, every single female athlete delivered a medal in Athens. Um, so, you know, whilst we have the facilities, it was also about just starting to put in consistent services. Mm. Uh, and and it's, it's been a wonderful journey to go through the journey of the Institute developing to, to what it is now from, from where it was. But I, I still, and for me, it's always about you, you, you recruit the right people and, and, and the rest will come. Mm. And how do you find it in terms of like the, the change? You're the only physio there now, so now you've got a, a t- big team. Like what and any what are the pros and cons of both? Um, I think I think for one thing, the being the only physio, obviously you 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 split yourselves, and some people may say you're not specialist enough in a in a sport, which is which is a fair comment to make. Um, I I always when I when I'm very grateful for being able to cut my teeth that way because I think if you are I've always been passionate about, as I said earlier in, in the podcast, about anatomy. And if you've got your basics and your knowledge, it's how you apply that to sport. The actual specifics of the sport, you've got a vast amount of knowledge from, from coaches and from, from experts within a sport. You bring in your expertise, your clinical expertise. And that's what I think is really important. If you've got good clinical skills and good anatomical knowledge, you bring that into a sport and then you can learn the specifics of of the requirements of the sport. And I think those things are easy to learn. The other side of things with respect to having good clinical insight and, and, and good clinical skills have to be honed and learned over a longer period of time, if that makes sense. And I can certainly talk from experience because I've worked in, in quite a few sports. So I think, I think the pros then, I mean, it was, it was so much less professional than it is now. So that the pros were that you, you worked, you had a broad base of exposure to, to many, many different sports. The cons of that certainly where you, like anything, you're dividing yourself up. So you can't give undivided attention to certain, to certain sports and perhaps give your specific energy into specific sports. Nowadays, you have the, you have the real ability to immerse yourself in a sport and become a real expert. The con of that and where we have to be careful is if you stay in that sport, for years and years and years is you do de-skill so for example if you're working in a sport like rowing which is a uh, you, you you're doing a um you often see your chronic injuries you don't see very many acute injuries and you'll see an overloading type overuse type injury then your ability to manage an acute ankle for example or an acute shoulder dislocation those skills will be less less developed because you don't get exposed to that um, so I think nowadays one, one, there is that pressure to be to go down a specialist area as in a sport, but then that de-skills you. And that's fine if you're going to stay in that sport for your whole career. 
but but often I think, and for me, a sort of a healthy cycle would be that eight year, eight to ten year cycle, and then move on. It's important to keep still exposing yourself, so you so you develop um, a whole set of skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, does that make sense? No, no, it definitely does. No, it definitely does. I mean, you can you can see that from visiting each of the different sites and. It's just it's an impressive setup. Like yeah. you got such a that now you're talking about SNC. Like at what point did you start to see SNC being more um, widely accepted? I I think it was probably in the cycle, uh, not so much the 2004 cycle, but I think where we really saw that again momentum um, was in the the cycle up into the build up of Beijing. And I think you know if you look at the trajectory of the success of of Team GB of the that Olympic journey. You saw, I think we start when we started on that journey. You really saw 2008 that those athletes arriving on that stage being physically in really, really good shape, and that was that was very obvious. It was certainly the journey at that stage for me when I was working with um, the, the the British women's hockey team and and England women. Is that was our focus? Our focus was on developing physically robust athletes, and I think that was. Um, uh, we saw that huge, if, if I kind of look at the cycles where we developed as, as a system, that was where it started to take traction. And I think we saw that that massive influence of, of being able to have a consistent and actually well thought out strength and conditioning program. Mm. That's just, as you say, it's just continued to develop and develop. Um, but that's, that's where the real infancy and the start of it was and where we started to see impact. And, and I think valuing, you know, as I said, the, the conversation uh, when I started in 2003, where the coach didn't, he, we don't want a strength and conditioning coach, I do the strength and conditioning. And it took, you know, it took two years to convince the coach that actually we, we, we do need to bring all these different skills. And, you know, now, as you know, we have a, we have a big multidisciplinary team. We've got psychologists, we've got performance lifestyle, we've got um, a, a huge array of skills which as long as you integrate them well, is very, very effective. One has to be careful that they don't stay, that they're not siloed, but if it's integrated, it actually has a, a huge impact on our athletes and on the sport. Yeah. I mean, you still have that. You can have those discussions now you about football of, you know, coaches obviously wanting to do things their way, but then you've got science coming in. So it's, it's still an ongoing thing, isn't it, really? It is. I mean, EIS seems to have really done a great job of being able to, really professionalize that and structure it as well yes absolutely i think i think um that that sort of argument between art and science is always there and i think it's always i'm i'm often people ask me is why why have you stayed in the institute as long as you have in in different roles and that's mostly because i really believe in in the power of the team altogether i just i love working in a team i love Every day is a learning day. You can't, with 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 the greatest will in the world, as a as a physio and some of the, the interests that I have, um, you you there's just not enough time to learn about you know, whether it's nutrition or whether it's strength and conditioning. But actually, working in a team where someone else is delving into, let's say, the impact of vitamin D, or let's uh, you know looking at relative energy deficit, and you've got real experts, and they come in, so you you learning, you get this vast amount of input of 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 fantastic learning opportunities and that's that's what I think certainly what drives me is is passionate about learning passionate about doing things differently how can we continue to to evolve and that that's what what drives most of us I think in the institute you don't if you I'd be surprised if someone coming into an institute into a team environment if you're not a team player Mm. because it is about actually bringing everyone's best 
to really have that that integrated impact on on a sport and really important where the i think where the the, the issues come sometimes with coaches and and support staff as if support staff going and try and blind with science and your coaches who come off into a different a different pathway is it's it's just about respecting everyone what everyone brings to the table the issues evolve i think where you have someone coming and thinking well you know i'm i'm the scientist i know better um and that's just not the case we all have something to to offer and it's how you actually you know i call it that sort of performance threat how you take someone through a journey is about all of you having input what are your insights coming together and that's difficult to do in big teams but it is definitely the most effective teams i think do that really well really mm. well. yeah no absolutely so in terms of like the, the first event that you went to then so was that the olympics was it your first yes. major event um first major event would be oh, numerous world cups and world champs probably and then the first big event actually was commonwealth games so in my in my role with um with uh, with the EIS and that was the 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and I went there with with hockey. Yeah. And so how did you find that experience then? What was it? What was it like going into that? Um, we're going back now, but we, we uh, I, I loved it. I think I think that whole the 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 really interesting thing at any multi sport is is and anyone will tell you this going to Olympics is you just see this collection of athletes that. You get some exposure to it in the institute where you know you're working with hockey one day and then with hockey uh, with rowing the next day where you've got a six foot seven athlete and and someone who's five foot four so it, it you you see the disparity of physical differences but that multi-sport buzz where there's this real excitement and camaraderie of a bigger team i think is also what what most of us who work in the the olympic arena love because you get that every four years all of these sports coming together both as team GB and indeed the world, which is is unique. You know, you 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 go to a World Cup with a sport, with with hockey, with 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 rowing, and it's it clearly is it's just that one sport I mentioned. But there's multi sport. It's just it's just a real celebration of sport. I think which is which is what 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 I love, and that's very it is very different. I think the the different part of that as well. Um, is the challenge of people keeping athletes and in fact sports staff on track with actually we've got a job to do and not you get you can get easy distracted with all the noise and the excitement around around these big games but Melbourne was I mean a fantastic first big games to go to because it was they did it brilliantly absolutely brilliantly and it's that you know the first time you're going to a, a, what I thought was a huge eating hall uh, was nothing compared to the games two years later but uh, the first time you're exposed to that, it's just this is just amazing, you know, because you're normally in a hotel where you go and have your meals when you at a World Cup or at a World Championships, but this becomes, and again, as I say, that both the attraction but also the distraction of that is that you've not you can eat what you like when you like, and and I'm not talking about athlete, I'm talking about sports staff as well. Yeah, you, know, you just you could go crazy and just you know have have food 24 seven and whatever you like whenever you like so there's there's lots of distractions in 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 multi-sport and that was good to be exposed to that early on and to take learnings from that mm. um and I, I think i was very i think very lucky in those days to also work with a um a, a support team really experienced so i was you know relatively novice or not relatively. i would never been to a big games and where it's the rest of the team they were really experienced so that allowed me to to learn to not make mistakes 
um, to listen to those who've been to multiple, either as players or indeed as coaches or support staff. And that for me was invaluable. It's just you know, quietly watching, learning and thinking, okay, this is how it's done. This is what we do. This is how we prepare a team in in an environment which you a lot of it you can't control. Um, mm. And I think that's that's the big message that I'll always share with anyone. You 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 spend so much of your preparation controlling every minutia. We've got even we've got better at that. Uh, perhaps perhaps you could say there's a pro and con with that. Is where we control everything. You, know, you control. Yeah, from a from a what when people drink, what what are we advising them with respect to vitamins? How much you sleep? We do wellness monitoring. How do you feel in the morning? All of these things we you could you could be accused of saying are micromanaged, and yet when you go into a big games environment, it's 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 hard to control some of those things. It's hard to control the noise levels because you'll have people you know you'll have boxes out at four or five in the morning running with their sweats. And you hear them and you, there's just noise all the time. So you go from a very controlled environment to an environment where you can't control everything. All you can do is control your reaction to that. And that's where we obviously do a lot of work with our athletes. Mm, yeah. And that was, that was a big thing for me is I think that, that, that going to that in 2006, going to Melbourne and just thinking, well, you, know, you, you do, you just get this, these little coffee vendors at every corner and it was, it was just so much to do other than your job, if that makes sense. So it's it, it's really important that you're disciplined in actually we're here to do a job. Um, and and that was a great learning to have in 2006 in preparation for Beijing. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It sounds like a cruise or something. You could just be eating all day. Oh, totally. It, it, it's <laughs> and you do it's and and seriously, I mean, then that was that whole sort of coffee culture starting and yeah, which hadn't really started in England yet. And you had these little you know, flat whites everywhere that you could literally be having to, and they were so delicious. So, you know, by the end of it, you're on this caffeine high. I mean, little things like that, but just things that you don't normally do in, in you know, in normal life. But so we had a, we had a, fortunately, a very experienced management group, not not me, but the rest of the group, which, you know, we would do early morning smoothies, early morning run and do, and and get into that sort of routine to to help you function, which was really important. And I think that's, that's- I think it's so important with with sorry to 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 speak there, Andy, but I, I think it's it's really important that mix. You know, it's always a real threat at the end of the games where you get, and we're seeing it at the moment, is a lot of people leaving, and that real. And I reflect on my career and how lucky I've been around having, when I started doing those 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 big events, is having really experienced, um, whether it was coaching staff or I say or or the 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 person we had who was doing all the video analysis was an ex coach. And, and an ex-international player. And we just, there was so much experience to learn from and to be um, not directly mentored, but were absolutely my mentors in, in how, to, how to perform in a, in a, um, in a multi-sport environment. Mm, yeah. I think that's, it's a concern when you, when you see a huge, when, you, when there's big turnover and you, you lose some of that, um, I, I think there's a threat there without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, they were saying that about some of the athletes as well in terms of that there was quite a high turnover between this one, which is maybe what, but why we didn't win certain ones in certain different disciplines. But in terms of like, so for what you did then, so what was what is the structure for you as the, the support staff? Do you have organised things or you just get on with yourself, you're sharing rooms? How does that work? And now or then, or, or generally? Uh, all, all of it. Yeah, it, it, 
It varies. Um, so uh, we, uh, if I talk about my experience when we work with a, a team sport, so when I worked with hockey, it was really structured. So you'd have... Um, You'd have uh, certainly coach led, and you'd know uh, we were really well structured. So you'd know days in advance what what that looked like when the training program was there, when we were meeting as a staff, and in many of the teams that have worked in, we'll have a regular catch up in the evening, the end of the end of the day, to reflect and say, well, okay, where we are at. Um, certainly from my point of view as a as a physio, are there any issues? Anything we're concerned about? Anything we need to 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 back off? Um, and those coming together as that multidisciplinary coach-led meetings are really important because it's a it's a check-in a also to see where everyone's at and you can have some pretty torrid days. Um, you know, I, I reflect back on, and actually, really, uh, Mike Roster was a doc I worked with in two thousand and eight, and he was in Tokyo um, in the in the village as as the doc that was working in the prep camp. So it was lovely to actually work with him again, and we were reflecting on on our Tokyo uh, on our. Uh, Beijing journey which was tough it was we had so many injuries and again we, we'd we'd went into that games with a lot of it's a, a big lesson learned we went in thinking we could carry a lot of these these hockey players who were who had, had niggles and we thought we'll be fine we can we'll carry them through and it um it was it was a tough old games I think we were the sort of frequent visitors to the polyclinic and we had to uh, unfortunately one of our athletes had a, an injury that we had to bring our, our reserve in from outside the village. So some tough, really some tough decisions, um, just one injury after another, some really tricky and tough calls that we were reflecting on. And I think um, that ability for a team to then at the end of the day, sit down, yeah, sometimes it's 11 o'clock at night and actually sit down and just say, you know, well, how are you doing and check in on each other is and to this day, Mike and I, we haven't worked together for, for when did I leave hockey? 2010. So we haven't actually worked side by side for 11 years, but there's that real bond that you pick up 11 years later. He's then prep camp, I can phone him at Hoppers 10 and say, look, I've got an issue. I need to bring a rider down to see you. And there's that. And it's absolutely born of those experiences that you've been, been through together in well, well, absolutely. I can remember flying back from Beijing thinking, I can't do this ever again. This was the toughest. It was the toughest three weeks of my life. But, you know, having four games later, I've continued to do it. So um, it must be some love and passion there. So I think I think it's, it's you can't over, sort of overemphasize the importance of that, of, of coming together. And, and again, as, as I said earlier, is, is actually everyone having someone something to offer, because often it may be, I might be coming from a, a medical point of view and saying, oh, yeah, I'm concerned about this person's back or knee or whatever. And someone has from another discipline may have noticed to say, well, actually, have you noticed this or something else is something else is going on here? And I think there's always wisdom. And sometimes we're quite focused on our individual um, roles, as it were, and I think it's quite important to get that information from others. So generally, how it would work is that's what you would would do. Now, if I fast forward to my experience in Tokyo, really different, a really different sport. Um, so in equestrian, not really, not not a team sport. So although we compete as a team at the games, that's the only time they ever compete as as a team. That in the world equestrian games. The rest of the time, they are individuals going out to whether they are dressage, eventing, 
show jumping competing against each other. So it's a very, you've got, uh, all of our riders are professional riders, so they run businesses. Um, they are, you know, we have the, the oldest athlete and Carl Hester who's 54. Does Carl need hand-holding? Absolutely not. This is his six Olympic games. Does he know how to perform? Yes, absolutely. So I, I, working in a sport like hockey, where you've got um, definitely far more of a, a team focus, in Tokyo, we hardly had any formal meetings. We had a lot of and now you know, a lot of WhatsApp group communication, and we'd have a lot of um, you know, meetings, kind of informal meetings at, at in the stables, but a very different approach. And I think, and it just depends on what sport you're in. And I think that's the important thing. I think in anyone coming into this kind of role is you've got to be adaptable and you've got to be versatile and be able to adapt to whatever that sport requires and and whatever the head coach or the pd the way they want to work is you need to adapt to that if if you know whatever support if you're a physio strength conditioning psych whatever if in my opinion if you haven't got that ability to be adaptable you won't you won't survive mm. uh, do you have reference to which sports that you've worked in then in terms of that have you, have you worked at a number of different games in a variety of sports then yeah i have um so Beijing was was hockey, so I was primary and, and went there with with the the British hockey team, which was fantastic. And always uh, say, whilst it was a tough journey, it was um, uh, many injuries and and some some tough times for those players. But those players, and again, one of the journeys that that we went on with hockey is a lot of those players who had disappointed me in not qualifying. I was meant to go with them to Athens. They didn't qualify for Athens. They then, we then came fifth in Beijing and then 2012, they won the bronze and then of course went on to win the gold. And there was a backbone in that team that started with you know, those four or five players who had immense disappointment back in 2004 to go on to, they, they worked through and to achieve that gold medal was, was amazing. Um, and whilst I wasn't working directly with them, there's that, that relationship with those, those athletes, those, those hockey players was, was absolutely incredible to see those lessons learned to put into what became a highly, highly effective gold medal, gold medal winning hockey team. So my preference, I'm definitely more of a team player. And I think that's probably reflected on, on playing sport in a team sport as opposed to an individual sport. Um, I've been, so 2008 was with hockey, 2012 and 16, I went with Team GB as part of the, the core team, the core medical team that go out and I was quite fortunate in, in 2012 in that weightlifting didn't have a physio and nor did modern pentathlon. So whilst I was part of um, the core, I, I still had sort of a team that I could step into fairly late, but work with them. And that would be my preference because it, 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 you do feel more invested than what, what sometimes happens in a core. So you just really see what any athletes are you helping out if there's uh, a lot of injuries in one sport and you might get called in to do some soft tissue work. So those, and, and then in 2016, I worked with Modern Pentathlon and then was asked to work with Charlotte Desjardins in the equestrian team. And it was on the back of that, that British equestrian said, would you come and work with us a couple of days a week to develop the human sports science and medicine? And um, so I've evolved with them and then went with them, chose to, to, was chosen to go with them through the Tokyo Olympics. And again, I think for me, it's that, it's that investment in that journey. So I, I joined Christian to 2018, and then we've had a, 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 an extra year, obviously a three-year build-up. 
and it's really getting to know those those riders those athletes what makes them tick which is which is part of the real there's a more definitely a richer journey and uh, for me personally and and I uh, it's not it's not degraded because you need to have definitely need to have good skills in the team GB core because you need to be able to step into any sport at any time and it's always there as a backfall if if something should happen and particularly obviously with the threat of COVID that was pretty real this this time around um but that would be my my preference I think is to go on a which is why I chose to to go back to work in a sport is to actually go on that journey uh take you, you apply some of your um, what you're wanting to bring to a sport, what you're wanting to develop within a sport uh, all the way through to the games. So mm. that's definitely my preference. And in terms of Tokyo then, how was that overall experience? Very different. Uh, I mean, really, really different to, to any of the games that, that I've been to before. But I, I genuinely, I think all of us just right up until two weeks before didn't think it was going to happen. You know, we, we, we kept going through thinking this, this can't happen. And obviously we were, the numbers were going up. And then when they announced that there was a state of an emergency in Tokyo, thinking, well, how the heck are we going to go? Thousands of people to the state of emergency. Um, but I have to say that the, we'd, we'd spent, we'd had that extra year of prep. And, and part of my focus as a, from a human point of view is that you absolutely, we had to go in there completely, no, no stone left unturned and real attention to detail. In the, in the preparation phase and having that extra time and certainly for us as a sport where it's a sport that as I said is pretty individualized they're professional they spend a lot of time on the road competing actually COVID was a bit was a blessing because we had more time actually ironically more contact time with with the riders to be able to prep them for the games which was which I, I think absolutely came as a positive and, and not only the riders but also the horses and our horses came through uh, Tokyo unbelievably well so the, the big difference obviously and and the one the one thing someone asked me that there was your high you know what was your high and what was your low and no matter how much you prepared for this is going to be a restrictive environment you you know you're not going to be allowed to walk outside we we opted to stay in the prep camp so we chose not to go into the village so uh, team GB for those who are not aware um, they've got a big prep camp where it's a, a hotel where every single athlete in Team GB came through the prep camp. For four, some were 48 hours, some were sort of four days, but it's, it's sort of because of the, the length of time with the journey, it's two days just to breathe, take stock, get yourself prepared, and then most sports would move into the village. We chose not to. We chose to stay in the prep camp because we felt it would we'd have more control of our environment we were in a very lucky or fortunate position that we had rooms already booked for our owners because owners come out with, with, with us, but because of COVID, they couldn't travel. So we had these excess 20 odd rooms that we thought, well, actually, if we're not using for owners, why don't we, we put athletes into them and we'll stay in a prep camp. So we'd done all of that. We'd, we'd spoken about it. We'd spoken about how restricted and we've done all the you know webinars about what to expect and you get there and it is literally you're in a hotel, you've got a, a, a small space, which BOA had done amazingly to buy some space outside of this hotel where we were allowed outside between seven and 10. And you could do a lap of this 200 meter by five meter by 200 by five. And that was the only outside space you could access to walk in or run in. And then you had a, um, a balcony outside the restaurant where we had uh, six watt bikes. So again, you could book those watt bikes 
And that was the only time you could go outside, apart from when you went to your venue. So it was the first 48 hours, I think, was probably the toughest. And getting there, you, you're fairly travel fatigued. You're having to make decisions. I, I think everyone, and I'm sure the BA will, will reflect on this, is every day things changed. And you had to be able to know. And as I said before, I think one of the, the key things, and we kept the message we kept saying to, to all of our team, is the team that stays the most flexible, non-reactive. You know that things, we all like to plan. Everyone, in my, in my experience, everyone at this level, whether you're a supporter, whether you're an athlete, you're planning. You've planned for this for four years. You go to a games, you've got your, your everything that you do. I like to know, well, I've got all my kit around me. I know where I'm gonna be treating. I know how I can plan my day. And that went out the window because you couldn't, the, the transport, although again, we, we got our own vehicles, but you weren't allowed to just change your plan because it had to be documented. And you, if you got lost, your vehicle was GPSed. So you would get back and you'd have to say, well, you know, you were meant to be here 10 minutes ago. Why weren't you? And they were going to a full inquiry as to why you've, you, your GPS has gone off track. So those kind of restrictions were really, really, you were escorted everywhere. So you were never, ever on your own. And I think that's probably the biggest uh, reflection is, is I, you know, normally at a games, you can go and let off steam. You can go for a run if you want to. In, a, in the village, you can, and you, you couldn't do this in the village either, but you certainly couldn't do it in the hotel. Go for a run, you know, go and sit somewhere either with a friend or on your own and have a cup of coffee and just kind of de-stress. And that, that wasn't the case at all. You were absolutely on top of each other and, and having to just deal with it and having to really say, well, I've got this plan today, but it may change. And uh, certainly that I think is probably the biggest, the biggest learning. And I think this, the, the teams that did the best out there were those teams that were able to cope with that, cope with the restriction firstly, uh, mentally, and then also be able to, uh, to be able to change plans. And to be okay with that, um, I think, absolutely crucial for, for these games of success. Um, and that was very different. That was that was felt really different. But I, I will say the BOA were incredible. They were, uh, we had a, 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 sort of our, our prep camp was like a home away from home. And they had tried to do as best they could in the hotel to have places where you could have breakout areas um you know, place where you could do sort of in, inside the hotel where you could do some yoga um there was a, an immense amount of respect of each other you know there's obviously mask wearing all the time every single minute of the day um but a, a huge my, my real take home from from all the sports that were there and at one stage there were 300 athletes in the hotel at one time was an, an enormous amount of respect of of each other and being able to keep each other safe. And I think I genuinely from, for Team GB to keep not one positive COVID throughout the games was incredible, absolutely incredible. And that was due to the EIS doing a lot of prep beforehand and a lot of, a lot of the work around all the testing that we went through, obviously daily testing when we were out there, that's a whole new experience clearly. And, um, and I think then the, the BOA and the support of that. So it's, I, I just reflect on a, a high performance system that is second to none. I, I, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of everything, every single system, but I certainly, I think we're one of the, the best, if not the best in the world of, of prepping our athletes and then certainly getting them through this games 
was, mm. was a testament to the system we have in place. No, absolutely. That it just sounds incredible. You think of that's going on times however many teams oh. and go on. Just what a logistical nightmare. Oh, and, and you know, every morning testing. I mean, that's, um, again, I was reflecting on a, a trip, again, with hockey back in, it must have been back in sort of 2000, and it was after Beijing. And we decided we wanted to, myself and the strength and conditioning coach and the physiologist decided we wanted to do some cortisol monitoring. So we wanted to do saliva tests in the morning with the players. And oh my word, we needed to do five days saliva tests in a row. And you would have thought we were asking them to donate pints of blood every day. And they were really not happy and we can't. And I, and I was laughing to myself thinking, and actually Mike was a doc. I said, Mike, do you remember how difficult it was to get, you know, the hockey players to do five days in a row saliva and here some you know some people are there 21 days 28 days every morning spitting every morning saliva testing and and everyone does it you know and obviously you you had to so it was it, it's it, it's yeah as I say I mean incredible and I reflect we had two positive COVIDs of athletes who didn't actually leave the UK that were picked up prior to coming because we had to be tested 14 days 96 hours and 72 hours before we left. And the reason why, and again, it was a, it was a UK sport, EIS, BOA decision, is no other, we did a 14 day test to see if we could pick up any anomalies. And that's where unfortunately two athletes were picked up, but they didn't actually travel. So to get through that without any was extraordinary. Absolutely mm -hmm. extraordinary. No, no, absolutely. No, well, it was great to watch. We, we spoke briefly before we started this and about how amazing it was. And in, in terms of memorable experiences for you just throughout, throughout not just Tokyo, but like your career, are there any ones that particularly stand out? Yeah, I think, um, that, God, there's so, there's so many, to be honest. I, I have to say uh, the one the one games I didn't mention was going to Sochi. So I uh, went to a Winter Games in uh, 2014, which was, I was a late, so I... Um, I think that's probably one of the most memorable. I worked with someone called John Jackson, who was the driver of the of the bobsleigh, and he had a complete Achilles rupture in uh, in in six months before the games. So it was July August time in 2013. The games were February 2014, and uh, being the driver, obviously a crucial part of the bobsleigh team. And at that stage, I was working at the intensive rehab unit based at Bisham Abbey, and he came in. And they had opted to do the surgery for the first time ever in this country, which was to attach. So normally with a, a ruptured Achilles, you know, with a sprinter, they're going to be out for, for at least a year. And there's a surgeon up in Scotland who was doing, um, it, it was new in this country, been done quite a lot in, in America. But basically they put cables through the tendon and then pins into your calcaneum. And that's what, what basically you've got a, a, a artificial Achilles already structured and then the collagen forms around it so he came in one week post-surgery and I was told you, you can start you know you can start getting him out of the the, uh, the the splint and you can start mobilizing him and that's just unheard of after a rupture anyway so that was a uh, one of the highlights I think was this complete unknown and complete first time surgery had ever been done and we had this key date that we needed to get him fit for and it was on the back of that, the work with him that come December, January, because it was a night I never traveled with, with Bob Slay, but they asked if I would consider going to the games with them to allow, because of this consistency of, of treatment. And without a doubt, one of the highlights of my career and one of the scariest times of my career was two weeks before the games where he had to do a flat out sprint 
we had to know that he could sprint. And you could have heard a pin drop as we prepared him to do this 20 meter sprint. And uh, John is a, a, an ex-Marine and he, he could run through a wall. You just, and, and part of that was going on that journey with him and pushing him, allowing me to push him and you know, the kind of the levels of complex work that we were doing to try and get some, this muscle firing. And, and then for them to, to really perform, uh, and again, one of the highlights and also one of the saddest moments of my career was this bobsleigh team that were sprinting the quick, we had the quickest start of any, um, any of the bobs and they came they came fifth a russian team won and a russian team came fourth and everyone was just how did this happen in particular the the the, the men's that the guy the russian team that won they hadn't performed for for years let alone months and of course six years later we know the huge amount of and i mean that's also something that i reflect on thinking i sat in that room where this huge doping uh, scandal where they were putting the you know, samples through the wall and I sat in that very room um, in doping control and eventually six years later they got that medal they got that bronze medal they deserved to get that day because we all knew we all knew that day that that's what they deserved that's what they should have got mm. and they were what uh, an, an absolute highlight of maker working with someone like John and the team coming in really late um, and the team you know initially who am I? How can I come in so late? The trust of the PD to say, this is, you know, Ash is coming in. And we went on an amazing, a quick journey, but an amazing journey uh, of, of real, of trust. And, and that was without a doubt a, a highlight. Unfortunately, you know, six years later was when they finally got to stand up at the BOA ball and get their medals. But um, we knew on that day they deserved that. And we knew that something was, was happening that wasn't right in, in yeah. Sochi. But of course, it took years to prove it, but eventually they did. Um, so that was uh, something, again, you know, when we talk about planning a career and what you sort of set out and then once you say, what's your three and five year plan? Well, well that wasn't part of my three and five year plan. And, and what, a, what a highlight. Um, uh, for, for me, uh, the disappointment of a team not, not uh, qualifying, we went as favourites to, to qualify for the Games in 2004 with the hockey and they didn't qualify was, uh, was really tough. But again, I think uh, I, I reflect on when that team won the, the bronze in London and um, I was there watching because I was, I was not working directly with hockey. I was there working as part of the, the core team. And Kate Richardson Walsh coming out of the changing room and she said, you're coming into the changing room and you're part of this journey. And that was just a moment, a, a small thing for her to do. And, and again, uh, the privilege of working with some of these athletes, Kate had her jaw fractured, second game in, and then had it rewired back on the pitch four days later, uh, you know, playing with a significant amount of metal work in her face, as well as obviously a mask to, to protect her. And that kind of bravery and um, just getting out there and doing it for the team is, is what, what, what I love. What's why I still do the work I do because it's just, it's just absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, and then I, I have to say my recent, without a doubt, um, a, a highlight. And, and again, one often thinks those highlights are going to be gold medals, but it's, it's definitely for me around the journey. Um, yeah, we, we, Charlotte was going into, Charlotte Desjardins was going into, Tokyo is a gold medalist in London, gold medalist in in, uh, in Rio. And um, unfortunately, sort of five weeks out, um, her horse, her top horse was 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 pulled out. 
and um, she went with this youngster the, who she she found she sourced four four years ago a little little horse called Geo, um, nicknamed Pumpkin, ten years old, shouldn't be an Olympic game, still still learning uh, to do what he's doing, still you know definitely a trajectory for for Paris, but not for Tokyo. And this horse got out there and again some of the biggest names in the sport. Uh, one of the, the German riders just knocked it out the park um, for a bronze medal, and it was extraordinary. It was just extra. It was, it was magical to see the the trust between a, a you know no one in no one in that stadium would have thought she could have walked away with the bronze medal. And um, uh, part of my my job that I that I'm very privileged is about being with those riders or whatever athletes you know minutes hours before they compete and those discussions and what goes on between the, the that you know behind closed doors and seeing that look in someone's face knowing they're going to go out there and and actually they believe they can do it which is amazing um and i've, I've had that privilege of working with some just massive privilege of working with some amazing amazing athletes um doing uh, you know conquering huge huge stories that often you don't hear about um but they they go out and they do it and that's and that's what 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 i love i'm ex ex extremely privileged to do what i do mm -hmm. no i think it's great to hear these stories because again as a fan myself you know i know all of those names that you've mentioned but you i don't, I don't know any of that backstory of any of it all you tend to see is maybe yeah. even 30 minutes an hour 10 minutes even on on the tv and highlights yeah. or whatever it is so no it's really good to hear that backstory and yeah. all the work that goes into it yeah i i um i it's because i do some of the I, I sit in meetings where we'll where they use the data so it's quite well known it's called grace note data which they'll look at all the stats and they'll do a prediction and i, I think our prediction for grace note was to come fifth in the middle table and i think we were only going to deliver 40 odd medals or something and um for the team to deliver what they delivered and I, and I think that's, I can remember the previous cycle in Rio sitting in a meeting um, where they do, they go through all the data. And obviously we have to look at that. We have to look at predictive models. And um, they were, were talking about, and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Catherine Granger won't mind me mentioning this, but again, an athlete I've worked with for many years. Um, and of course she got a gold in London, which was amazing. And then had a very, came back to do Rio and it was a tough journey. It wasn't a straightforward journey at all. And I can remember speaking to her and they had 50 days to go. And I'd been to a meeting at UK Sport where they'd pretty much written off that, that crew. They were like, and, and understandably, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't done in a harsh way. It was, well, actually, they, they were coming sixth and seventh and really not, not quite achieving what we thought they would. And, and I remember sitting in a meeting and I was saying, well, no, no, no medal. And I, and I sat there listening and they'd said we were going to deliver, I think it was 54 or something in Rio. And I was like, you forget about the people and I can remember Catherine saying to me they had 50 days to go and instead of going we've got 50 then 49 then 48 then 47 she said this is day one and that that day one day two so so you're not thinking oh my I'm running out of time it's actually this is day one of our journey mm. and her I mean another highlight without a doubt was her and Vicky Thornley's achievement of a of a silver and pretty much you know that close to getting a gold where everyone had written them off, um, and again, it's that it's that look in in someone's eyes, and I, and I and I've seen it that that the Kate Richardson Walsh, after having you know probably ninety percent of 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 athletes would say, look, I'm out, you know, I've, I've massive fracture, huge huge trauma, 
and to be able to mentally get back and do that again, absolutely phenomenal. Catherine, to be able to have enough belief that actually this is day one of our, and we've got 50 days to do this, to turn it around. Uh, you, you see it, Charlotte, exactly the same. And, and I, I've seen, unfortunately, John Jackson in, in doing something that certainly, you know, six months out, none of us knew if it was possible because we were all going on this journey together. But I think it's that it's clearly you've got to have the clinical skills. But I think for me, this job is about relationships and it's about trust. And it's about you know, walking alongside those those athletes and, and and what's meaningful for them and how can we we best help them. No, no, I think well, I think that's a great great time to end on just with that really positive outlook on it. I'm not going to ask what you're going to happen in the next three or five years because we've had the answer to that one. Right. <laughs> I've got an idea, but my, honestly, I shouldn't. I probably shouldn't say that because we always thought it seemed really important to have to, to have these, and I, I do always have a, a vague idea, but. My word, I've, I've been incredibly lucky to have uh, some unbelievable surprises along the way. So I think always have a, have a vague plan, but then also be prepared to, uh, as I say, I think definitely the mantra of Tokyo is be flexible and and go where where your passion takes you. That's the important bit. No, absolutely. No, that's a great way to end. So thank you very much for giving you time today. I really Absolute enjoyed pleasure. it. Absolutely. And um, yeah, well, I will speak to you soon. Lovely. Thanks, Andy. Thanks so much. Right.